Amen. Thank you, TJ. All right, open up a copy of God's Word, if you have it, to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, chapter 21. As you find your way there, let me tell you why we're not in Romans. This year, not only did a Christmas fall on a Sunday, but New Year's fell on a Sunday too, and I felt, to, I felt compelled to share a message, honestly, as I'm, I do a Bible reading plan, and every, every year I come to this passage and it grips me, and this year it haunted me a little bit, um, maybe because in three days' time, did you know in three days, it's the official birthday, eight-year-old birthday of Grace Life Church. We're going to have an official celebration at the end of January, the fifth Sunday service falls on that day, and it just is easier for us to do it that way logistically. But in three days' time, it's going to be eight years. And as I was reading through this passage about a terrible king named Jehoram. He ruled for eight years. He ruled for eight years in Judah, and one of the worst kings ever. Terrible, terrible legacy. In just eight years' time. That's two terms, as we think of, of America leadership, you know. But you didn't get voted in a king in Israel. It was your due right. He was the eldest son, and so he was the king. And he wrecked everything. He wrecked everything for Judah. And he left a terrible legacy. And that's honestly the word that kept rising up as I thought about this passage. And I just felt compelled um, to share what, what God was showing me in this passage. And so the name of this sermon today is called Building a Legacy. Because every single person in this room, you're doing something. Whether you're aware of it or not. Whether you like it or not, whether it's a good one or not, you are building a legacy. Did you know that? You know what a legacy is? A legacy, my son, I asked him on the way to church, I said, what's a legacy? And he, and he said, it's how you'll be remembered. And I thought, man, he's, uh, he'd be a good preacher one day because my definition is a lot longer, right? Shorter sermons are sometimes better sermons, right? But not always, my friends. <laughs> legacy, long-lasting impact of a person's life. Long-lasting impact. So you are building something right now, and it's this, long-lasting impact on the lives of others. If you have a family, if you have children, a spouse, uh, siblings, obviously they would be the, the closest to whatever splashes off of your life onto them. If not, companions, friends, co-workers, colleagues. But make no mistake, you are leaving a legacy. And, and legacy is not necessarily what you leave for somebody, it's what you leave in somebody. Does that make sense? It's deep and it's lasting. Jehoram, as you're going to hear in this passage, he built the legacy, um, and it was a sh just a short amount of time. He had a long-lasting long legacy. So I'm going to read this passage, and then we'll jump in together, okay? Second Chronicles chapter 21. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Yeah, I'm kind of going off script. Sorry that it's not going to match right now. That's the last verse in the chapter. We'll build up to it. My mistake. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. So Jehoshaphat passed away. His oldest son, Jehoram, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat. Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, two brothers named the same. Man, that would have been crazy, wouldn't it? <laughs> Azariah, you get over here right now. Which one? <laughs> Michael, 
and Shephathiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities. Man, these guys were set up for success in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, that is Jehoram's days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots. And he rose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariot commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. At that time, Libna also revolted from his rule because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. Verse 11, moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet. Man, this is one of them emails you do not want to get. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. Because you have not not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom, and also you have killed your brothers of your father's house who were better than you, behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people. Literally in Hebrew, that says the Lord is going to strike you. He'll bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with a disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. How about that email? And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belongs to belonged to the king's house, and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. Now check out this legacy right here. Listen to this. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. And then we'll put this verse up so you can see it. Verse 20, this is what I want you to focus on. Verse 20, he was 32 years old when he began to reign. Or I guess I can do it, I'm sorry. There we go. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, And he departed with no one's regret. 
They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Picture your funeral, your memorial service, your celebration of life, whatever you want to call it, and if anybody bothers to come, right, when you think of him, the preacher says, hey, would anybody like to say anything in passing to, uh, to the memory of Jehoram and Cricket's chirp? And they say, well, we're going to take this time to mourn, and somebody holds up their hand and and they say, preacher, maybe, maybe you're the only clueless one here, but we're not really sad. We're, we're about to go and have a party. And somebody says, oh, wait, I have something to say. And the preacher, finally, some order. And he gives them the microphone, and they say, good riddance. That's it. No tears, no mourning. What kind of a legacy, man? What kind of a legacy is that? That's a terrible one. That's, a ter- That's the worst obituary in the Old Testament. Do you know that Chronicles, a little history lesson on the Bible, some of you are reading through the Bible and you're like, First and Second Kings sounds really similar to First and Second Chronicles. And it does. It's the same history, but it's from different perspectives. And here's a little hint. Chronicles, it's, it's much more optimistic. It's not edited. Uh, it just leaves out a lot of the sordid details of that, that Samuel and Kings puts in, right? Um, so Chronicles is the most optimistic, optimistic perspective on the kings in the history of the Old Testament. And he has absolutely nothing good to say about this king, not one good thing. I mean, he even finds some good things to say about Ahab and Manasseh and some of the other wicked kings. He has no good thing at all to say about this king. So tragic was his legacy. And it took him eight years to tear down decades of what Jehoshaphat and Asa, his father and grandfather, built up. They, they did reforms in Israel. They tore down the high places. They reestablished order and worship. They, you know, built up the inside of the temple again. And he tore all of that down and introduced his people to whoredom and harlotry and spiritual apostasy and compromise. And they were invaded. It was a terrible time. And as I think about that, you think, great preacher, good to be here on New Year's. Sounds like a real joy ringer of a sermon here. But I think, I think that we're going to find that there's some hope here. But man, this is like an Old Testament signpost. You know, there's a verse that the Apostle Paul wrote. He mentioned this twice, once in Romans and once in Corinthians. And he said this, whatever was written in former days, what's he talking about there? The Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And he said again in 1 Corinthians, now these things, and he was talking about wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, rebellion, apostasy. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. So I would submit to you the same thing the apostles did. The Old Testament can can serve, even a a hard passage like this with a terrible legacy can can serve as a signpost to you and say, hey look, don't go this way. Don't do what this man did. Leave a much better, richer, abiding legacy. One of grace and not one of destruction and sin and folly and rebellion. Amen? I, was, uh, I actually read this the other day. This is one of the, the worst obituaries that I've ever read. Check this out. And this is real. It's not made up. It's not something you're going to find on Snopes.com or something like that. This guy's daughter actually wrote this about him. Leslie Ray Popeye Charping was born in Galveston, Texas, 1942, And he passed away in 2017, which was 29 years longer than expected and much longer than he deserved. 
He leaves behind two relieved children, along with six grandchildren and countless other victims, including an ex-wife, relatives, friends, neighbors, doctors, nurses, and random strangers. At a young age, Leslie quickly became a model example of bad parenting, combined with a complete commitment to drinking, drugs, womanizing, and being generally offensive. Leslie enlisted to serve in the Navy, but not so much in a brave, honoring, and patriotic way, but more as a part of a plea deal to escape criminal charges being filed against him. The beloved, wait, Leslie lacked ambition and motivation to do anything more than being reckless, wasteful, squandering the family savings, and fantasizing about get-rich-quick schemes. Leslie's hobbies included being abusive to his family, expediting trips to heaven for the beloved family pets, and fishing. Leslie's life served no other obvious purpose. He did not contribute to society or serve his community, and he possessed no redeeming qualities besides quick-witted sarcasm, which was amusing during his sober days. No services will be held. There will be no prayers for eternal peace and no apologies to the family he tortured. Leslie's remains will be cremated and kept in the barn until Ray, the family donkey's wood shavings, run out. Leslie's passing proves that evil does in fact die and hopefully marks a time of healing and safety for all. Wow. It's, if that, it's not funny. It's tragic, isn't it? I mean, who would want that for their life? But I would guarantee you nobody starts out thinking, you know what? I want my obituary and my epitaph to be the worst in the history of the world. Um, it's actually good to think about these things. You guys know this? This is not morbid. A cemetery can be actually a really good classroom. And, I, and I, I wish I lived closer to a cemetery because I love walking through it. I love looking at the headstones. I love reading what was said, you know. In that dash, there's, there's so much that, that could be said, you know. Tommy Clayton, uh, born 1975, dash, died such and such year. And then what's in that dash? Will it be beloved father, preacher of long sermons? I, I mean, I don't know. What is it? It's, not, it's to be determined, right? You're building that legacy right now. Over the Christmas break, my favorite uncle, Dean Jackson, passed away. He was 83 years old, and I got to go and do his funeral and got to read his eulogy, and he was an amazing man. He was wealthy, but he was extremely generous. He was strong, but he was super gentle. He was very intelligent, but he was super modest. I mean, he wore his wisdom like a pocket watch, you know, he could pull it out and tell the time when he needed to, but he didn't walk around boasting about what o'clock it was all the time. He was that kind of guy. Um, when he was in his late 60s, he adopted um, his step-grandson who, who really needed help. He adopted him. He was just a little baby when he adopted him, and he raised him like his own son, got him in a good private Christian school, Taught him how to be a man, taught him how to play sports. He's an incredible baseball player. And he was 17 years old when I did that funeral. And he walked up to the casket. And I thought we were going to have to go and carry him away. He was, it, was, it, it, was, it was sad, but it was also joyful to see, like, that was the only dad, really, he had ever known. And he was literally hugging the cas casket, weeping, weeping over my uncle's shell of a body that was left there. They had to basically say, J.J., it's okay, man, we, we can go. And, and I think of that funeral, and I think of this funeral, and the contrast. You know what I mean? Will people weep at our funeral? What kind of a legacy will we leave behind? Okay, that's enough of intro. 
What's this passage teaching us? It could be outlined a lot of different ways. I want to outline it this way right here. Building a legacy. Here are three things I see from this passage, and they're, and they're kind of in reverse, all right? We're going to take positives from this. Three ways that you can look at this life and build a, a lasting legacy of your own. And point number one is uh, it's going to be this, take the long look. Take the long look. You say, what do you mean? I heard a person describe discipleship and sanctification once like this, long obedience in the same direction. I like that, don't you? Not this flash in the pan, uh, kind of short term, I'm living for the moment. When you live for the moment, you're basically uh, a borderline narcissist because you're thinking, how is this going to help me in the moment? What can I do right now that's going to be all about me? I'm going to glean maximum benefits. It's not putting off payday until later. It's not thinking about others first. It's being for yourself, about yourself, into yourself. He was a classic narcissist. He would have fit the textbook definition. He had everything he possibly needed for a good life, right? He had it passed down to him. He had privilege. He had wealth. He had status. He had a great example of a godly father and a, and a godly, for the most part, grandfather. And because he lived for the moment, he was a pleasure seeker. He was a hedonist, you could say, not the good kind, not the John Piper kind, right? Seeking his satisfaction in God, but seeking it in other things. He ruined his life. He left the terrible legacy. And here's the first thing he did that was living for the moment. He looked around, and he saw what the prophet Elijah would write a letter about later. He saw, you know what? I'm not the king because I'm the most capable person. I'm not the king because I'm the, most, I'm the wisest son. I'm the king because I'm the oldest and at any, at any given time, I could be knocked off my throne by one of these princes or rulers or brothers. So because I'm deeply insecure, right, radically insecure, but I'm also ambitious and ruthless, I'm just going to knock off the competition and eliminate the opposition, right? That's what he did. He was deeply jealous and he was deeply envious. And I know we're thinking, man, what in the world could this text have to say to somebody like, my, like me? Are you living for the moment or are you taking the long look? Decisions that you make, do you, do you literally make those decisions thinking, what would be best for me right now? Or are you looking way into the future and thinking, hey, what kind of person is this going to make me into? How is this going to impact and affect and shape the people around me? That's taking the long look. That's asking, like, is this wise? Not, is this convenient? Is this convenient? Is this quick? Is this easy? You know the, the, the obituary we read? He was looking for get-rich-quick schemes. Do you know why people do that? Can I just be honest with you? Don't take offense at this. If you're looking for an easy way to get rich, hey, more power to you. Come share it with me when you find it, okay? Uh, but Solomon says, <laughs> watch out for wealth without a commitment, without work, right? It's, it's like the, almost the pyramid scheme warning. Uh, do you know why people do that? It's usually because they're lazy, right? They don't want to work. I want to get rich, but I don't want to move a muscle. I don't want to put any intellectual effort. Uh, I don't want to pursue a career. I just want everything to be handed to me. I'm not taking the long look. I'm taking the short look, the flash in the pan. No, sanctification, discipleship, it's long obedience in the same direction, and it's hard. That's why it's synonymous with self-denial. You know, I was talking to this, about this with somebody the other day, and I know it's the spirit of our age, to thine own self be true, Right? Except that's the opposite of what Christianity says. What's Christianity say? Oh, man, i got to preach a sermon on this. What's Christianity say? What did Jesus say? Serve others and deny yourself. 
oh, that's, that stings a little bit, doesn't it? But listen, guys, denying yourself, is, it, it's not like hurting yourself. It's just putting off payday way into the future. Jesus said, whatever you give up for me and my kingdom, I can promise you, you will be more than compensated. Over abundantly, richly compensated. Do you guys believe that? Do you believe, there's not, do you, believe you cannot outgive God? You say, I gave up, up X, Y, Z to serve God. Guarantee you, you'll get it back, multiplied over, shaken, and brewing over the rim. That's what the Gospel of Luke says. You cannot outgive God. If you live for the moment, if you live for yourself, if you love your life, in the gospel sense of the word, you'll lose it. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, oh man, I didn't write this down. He said, if you live for earth, then that's all you're going to get. But if you live for heaven, you get heaven and you get earth thrown in too, right? I mean, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth one day and we're going to rule over it. So it may be a good question to ask yourself, I'm about to do this thing, maybe it's questionable, how will it matter in, a tri- in 500 trillion years from now, what I'm about to do? <laughs> will it shape me into a better person? Will it, will it help uh, promote the kingdom of God and the relationships around me? He lived for the moment, flash in the pan kind of idea. He was the classic narcissist. There's a proverb, Proverb 2, it says this. It says, when the wicked rule, the people groan. People groaned under his rule. I mean, it reminds me of Cleopatra. You remember her? She murdered her husband. She murdered her two brothers. It reminds me of Herod. What did Herod do? A king was born. His star shone. Wise men came, and they came to Herod, and they said, hey, where's the king of the Jews who's been born? And Herod heard, king of the Jews. I'm king of the Jews. And it says, when he heard this news, Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why? Because they knew blood's about to get shed, and it, and it did get shed. He killed every male child under two years of age. Well, except for one who escaped because he had to grow up and die for our sins, right? Living for the moment, Bernie Madoff. How do you remember him? This incredible investor, man. He had such an analytical mind. He was so clever. No, he's the biggest crook. That, he's the biggest American uh, crook that, that organized the biggest American Ponzi scheme in history. $65 billion, man. I don't know if he's still alive. If he is, he's, he's going to, 150 years, he was sentenced in prison. Why? Because he lived for the moment. Get wealthy now. How'd that, you want to you you say this, how'd that work out for you? That's the counsel. You know, sometimes as, as a pastor, as a counselor, I have to say this to people. That to me, this is the DEFCON 5. Nothing else works because sin makes people stupid, doesn't it? Sorry, I'm just being blunt. I can be blunt with you guys, can't I? Can I say this? Sin is so unreasonable unreasonable, irrational, it makes you do stupid things, stupid things, like a drunk, and he wakes up the next morning, and you told them what they did, and they're like, I can't believe I did that, well, dude, you were just stupid, you were drunk, sin makes you do stupid things, and I was going somewhere with this, and I can't remember where I was going with it, yeah, yeah, thank you, man, you guys, are, who said that, man, you get a cookie, all right, um, Sometimes when I'm counseling people, I'm trying everything. I'm trying to reason with them. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Bill, you've been there too as a pastor. You're reasoning with them. You're trying. You're praying for them. And uh, they're just not listening. And so you have, to pull the hand, you have to pull the eject handle. You know what the eject handle is? You look at them and you say, dude, listen to me. This, is, this will be the last, possibly the last counsel you ever hear from me because you're not going to like it and you may run away. This is not going to end well for you, what you're doing. 
this rebellion, this sin, this defiance, this idolatry, this rejection of every good and honorable biblical principle that's been shared with you, your rejection of it, God is not mocked. And the Bible says, you reap what you sow. You know, that comes from the Bible. If you reap, if you sow the wind, you reap the what? Whirlwind, that's the law of the harvest. If you plant seeds that are wild, you're going to get a wild weeds all in your garden. Uh, that's DEFCON 5. That's like pulling the eject handle. It's like, hey, look, this is the last thing I'm going to say to you, and you can go your way, okay? This is not going to end well for you. Mark my words. So that was really what Elijah sh- shared with him. He lived in the moment. He didn't st- listen to reason. He didn't take the long look. And I think of this because it's so easy. It's when, you're, when you're living that way, it's so easy to wreck your life and the life of others. And you hear that all the time with the scandals and, and, and the pastorate, right? You hear it and you see it. Every time a Christian pastor stumbles, you trace the breadcrumbs, and it was a, just a moment, a decision that he made, that he was living for the moment. And it cost him his ministry. Sometimes it cost him his family, and it cost him his legacy. And, man, that troubles me as a pastor because it, 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 all, it feels like it gives Christianity a black eye. And when David was confronted by Nathan, and he said, you've given the enemies of God reason to blaspheme. Um, you know, they already want to reject Christianity. Now you've given them and their minds a reason to do that. And, and I think, Lord, kill me before you would ever let me do anything like this, do anything to shame my family, dishonor the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and bring blight and shame on the church. Um, take the long look, long obedience in, in, in the same direction. That's point number one. Um, Kevin DeYoung said this once, and this is maybe for young people. He said, young people tend to overestimate the good that they can do in five years and underestimate the good that they can do in 50 years. It's true, and I think we do that too, even when we get older. We think, man, I'm going to go out and do this thing and maybe compromise here and there, cut a corner, and it's really going to help people. It's like, man, it's take the long look. Just imagine and contemplate what this is going to do decades from now. Okay. Point number two, choose righteous alliances. Choose righteous alliances. Um, You know, Jehoram's father passed down to him silver and gold, riches, fortified cities in Judah. He gave him a really good head start. Unfortunately, he passed something else along down to him, and it was an alliance with a very, very wicked woman, Jezebel's daughter. How many people, when I say the word Jezebel, have good thoughts? (laughs) Or Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel were husband and wife. He was a king in in the northern kingdom of Israel, and she was the queen, so to speak. And man, they were wicked. They were wicked. He was the poster child for rebellion, rebellion and pagan idolatry and spiritual apostasy. And her name is like a byword for, for whoredom. In fact, the New Testament writers, uh, whenever Jesus wrote a letter to the churches in the book of Revelation, whenever they were deviating spiritually, compromising spiritually, uh, listening to false teaching, you know what he would say? He would say, you are tolerating that woman Jezebel in your church. You're tolerating her, and she's seducing everybody, and therefore I'm going to throw her and everybody else that follows her into a sickbed until they repent. Uh, So Jezebel and Ahab were like poster childs for rebellion and apostasy. And their daughter, 
uh, Jehoram's dad thought, man, what a great wife for my son. And this goes back to point number one. You know why he did that? It was more for a political alliance. Like, I'm going to strengthen the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This will draw them together and strengthen them. But you know what it did? It weakened both. <laughs> it, it weakened and destroyed the southern kingdom because her mother introduced uh, Baal worship and in the northern kingdom. So what do you think her daughter is going to do when she's queen of the southern kingdom? She's going to introduce that. And listen to what it says. Just see so that you know I'm not making this up. It says this. Let me see. Verse 11, moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah, and he led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom. Man, I can't, just as a pastor, as a leader, I just think, you are leading people. They're following you. They're trusting you. They're, they're, they're following in your footsteps. They're, they're leading by example. And where are you taking them? You're taking them further and further away from God and essentially saying, hey, come on, this way. This is better. This is a good path. This is a good place. These are green pastures and still waters are over here. Follow me. And you're actually taking them to the edge of a, of a sheer-faced cliff where there's death and destruction down below. He introduced Baal worship to the southern kingdom because of his wife. And a letter came to him. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Choose righteous alliances. Now, look. This is the, the most obvious lesson here, is who's the closest alliance that you will ever have? Your spouse, right? If, you, if, if God brings a wife or a husband into your life, that's going to be your best friend. Not your only friend, hopefully, but your best friend. That's going to be your closest companion. They are going to influence you and shape you in ways that you can't even see or understand until years later. And so how important is it to choose your spouse carefully? and to pray, and to ask for godly wisdom, and to not rush into anything that you may regret later. How, how incredibly wise is that, and biblical? Because the Apostle Paul says this, he says, do not, do not be unequally yoked together. You've heard that before, that comes from the Bible. You know, a, a yoke of oxen was how they farmed a field. It's how you, it's how you plowed the furrow, it's how you, pl- you did everything. And you had to team uh, the oxen together, uh, so that it would go straight. If you had a weak oxen and a strong oxen, it would be like this, right? Like a broken wing of an airplane. If you had an ox and a goat, <laughs> it'd be really bad. And the Apostle Paul is using that Old Testament imagery, and he's saying, look, do not be unequally yoked. What fellowship does Christ have with a demon? You know? And he's not being ugly and saying unbelievers are so nasty. You may find an unbeliever who's so nice and seems to be so honorable when you think, oh, goodness, I can date this person and I'll win them over to the Lord, right? They call that, you know, evangelistic dating. And, uh, but that's a terrible idea because God's sovereign. You can't save anybody. You couldn't save yourself. And, and once you've committed to that person emotionally and spiritually and unfortunately sometimes in other ways, They've already taken you down the path, right? So it's so important choosing your spouse, marrying in the Lord, because that's going to be the person who shapes you and influences you and impacts you. But also, I would say this, beyond the family, is your, your friends, the people who are closest to you, are they going to pave an easy road for you to make spiritual compromises? Or are they going to foster godliness? And, you know, I read this quote a long time ago. It said, Enemies stab you in the back, but friends stab you in the front. And here's what they meant by that. 
You know, a good friend will tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear it. You guys have a friend like that that will come up to you and say, hey, look, I love you, bro, or I love you, sis, and I love you too much to be silent from the, from the train wreck and dumpster fire of where your life is headed. I love you too much to let you continue to do this. And to say what we talked about earlier, this is not going to end well for you. Can, I talk, can we talk about this? I've been praying for you. I'm burdened for you. I'm concerned for you. I hope that you are choosing friends like that in your life that love you enough and love Christ enough and love the gospel enough that they're going to come alongside of you and not do what his wife did for him and lead him down the primrose path and lead all of Israel and Judah into apostasy and whoredom. So that's the second point. Her name was Athaliah, and man, it was terrible. It was a terrible alliance. Here's, here's point three. Point three, stay sensitive to God's word. And, and in my opinion, I think this is the most important and the most valuable lesson from this. Stay sensitive to God's word because look, I do not care how passionately and obediently you follow Jesus. I can promise you, I can promise you, there is going to come a time in your life when the word of God is going to come to you with convicting power. And how you respond to that word is going to determine really your legacy. And Elijah, this is, a, this is an amazing letter that Elijah wrote to him. It's amazing, number one, because he wasn't even a prophet in Judah. That's the south. He was a prophet in Israel. And yet, he wrote a letter. He felt so compelled seeing what was going on down there. The Spirit of God came upon him and he wrote this letter. And, you know, God had, God had given Jehoram multiple opportunities to repent, and he didn't. He sends invasion. I mean, every, everything this guy did, uh, it's, it's, it's like poetic justice. Everything he sought to do because he didn't take the long look, it, it crumbled right underneath him. He wanted to establish his, uh, his family and his children forever. They all got killed, right? He wanted honor and fame, and that got taken away from him. He wanted to be popular. He wanted the people to love him. Uh, he died, and nobody shed any tears. He wanted to broaden his borders. That's why he and, and maintained power and control. That's why he invaded those cities, and uh, he barely escaped with his life, right? Everything this guy did uh, turned in on him because of idolatry. And then the prophet Elijah, this was his final chance. This is his final chance to repent. God sent this letter through the prophet Elijah, and he said, and he said essentially, look, this is not going to what? And well for you. This is, this is the final warning. This is going to be strike three, Jehoram. God is not going to be mocked. What you're doing is not going to end well for you. God is not happy with this. And he's about to take you out. He's about to strike you a blow. This is the same, same Hebrew wording that we find in the book of Exodus when Moses and Aaron came up to Pharaoh and they said, thus says the Lord, let my people go or I'm going to plague you with plagues. That's what it says. I'm going to plague you. I'm going to, str- I'm going to knock you out. God said, this is your last chance to humble yourself and to have an open and receptive heart, or I will knock you out. (laughs) How about that? And what did he do? He didn't. He didn't. He didn't obey. He didn't have a humble and a soft heart. Man, I pray that. I find myself when I'm counseling people, talking to people, or when I'm going to preach a sermon that may be considered more of a challenge. Do you know how I pray for you? I pray, Lord, give them a soft, open, humble, receptive heart to what's going to be shared today. I do not know where you're at today. This is not a humongous church, and we don't have a huge online following, 
But no doubt, whenever, whenever God brings a message like, to me, like this to me, I think, Lord, these are the people that are here. You know, there's plenty of people that aren't here that would probably need to hear this, but you're here, and you're watching from home. Not somebody else. I don't want you to think about somebody else like, man, I know who he's talking about, that person, that train wreck. No, 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 no. Maybe this sermon's not for you today, though. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes you come to church, and it's for you, but it's not for you today. It may be for you five years from now to remember this, right? Um, and I lost where I was going again with that. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of getting older. Yes, thank you. I'm really just testing you to see if you're listening. I, I pray this, though, like, Lord, somebody here maybe is about to, to, to head into spiritual compromise. They're, they're about to, to turn their what could be a righteous, enduring, godly legacy on its head. Please, please, Lord, intercept them. Cut them off at the pass. Use, this, use the, the, these two fish and, and, and a couple of loaves of bread uh, of a sermon that's, that's going to be flawed like every other sermon because we're, we're, you know, all of us are flawed. Use it to intercept them and to challenge them and to convict them. But I pray more than, more than anything else for God to give the people of this church a soft, receptive heart. Because I guarantee you, at some point in your life, you're going to get a sharp word of rebuke from the Lord. And I'm telling you, man, pride is so powerful. I'll share a story that's not going to put me in best light. Over Christmas break, actually the day after Christmas, one of my kids was doing what kids do. They were riding on the handlebars of a bicycle um, on the sidewalk, and it didn't go well. <laughs> it didn't go well. It, it ended up turning into an ER visit. And uh, when this... When this child came home, I was in the middle of a, you know, I I do projects at the end of the year, the holiday break. I had a whole bunch of backyard projects that we've been wanting to do forever. And I was in the middle of it, and then this child came home, and head was swollen, ear was, it just looked terrible. And uh, one of my kids said, Daddy, we got to, we got to, we got to take them to the ER. And I blew up. Can you believe that? (laughs) I've got a child that that loves uh, her sibling so much. She sees immediately, hey, this kid needs, needs emergency attention just to make sure that nothing's, you know, messed up up there. And I got angry. And I'm like, what are you, basically, what are you, a doctor? You know, and in and, and my mind, I'm thinking, have you guys ever been to the ER and had a great experience? Been in and out, right? So they serve hot coffee there with creamer and sugar. It's amazing. You meet, the, you meet the happiest people in the ER. It's, it's, a, it's like the DMV. It's the most wonderful place you could ever go to. I just, sometimes I think that way. I think ER, 10 hours. I was just angry. And so my son gets in the car with me, and I probably cry talking about it. That's okay. You don't have to apologize for for being emotional, right? And he realizes I'm fuming, fuming. When I'm mad, I get really quiet. After I yell, (laughs) I get quiet. And he said, Dad, are you mad? I said, I'm not mad at you, son. I'm not mad at you. I'm just tired, and I'm aggravated, and we're, we're about to have a long haul. And so, man, we ride in silence up to the uh, walk-in clinic. I wanted to go to the walk-in clinic first just to see if it'd be easier. And they don't, they don't have the equipment there, and the person, uh, the, the person who said, it, this is a really long story. Uh, and I'm not going to make it a long story. All this to say, pride is so powerful. Pride is such a powerful thing. Ended up, everything was fine. You want to hear the end of the story, right? No brain bleeds. We, did, we got, ended up going to the ER and got scanned. Everything was fine. 
But I was just thinking back, and I had to apologize. I was in the ER waiting room, and I had to text my family, uh, which is unfortunately not the best way to ask for forgiveness, but I felt like I needed to do something right then because the Word of God came to me with such power and such conviction. And I thought, man, what kind of a dad and husband and father and leader am I? Why in the world would I get angry and get bent out of shape? Thank God my son's not dead. Thank God he's not, you know, he got knocked out, which is why we took him to the ER. Um, Anyway, pride is so powerful, man. I wanted to be angry. It felt right to be angry. Does that ever feel right to you to be angry? (laughs) It kind of feels good, doesn't it, to be angry? That's why people are angry. And the book of James came to me and said, hey, the anger of man does not work about the righteousness that God requires. So why don't you humble yourself, you little teeny tiny person? Why don't you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God um, and open your heart to him? And I did, man. I did. It took me a while because I, I was so angry and it felt right to be angry. Um, pride is a powerful thing. There's a verse that says, the Lord tears down the house of the, pro- the, house of the proud. He will tear it down. And listen, Jehoram, was, he did not have a soft heart. He did not have a receptive heart. He did not have an open heart. He had an angry, calloused, cold, aloof, indifferent heart. And you know what happened to him? God judged him. That letter, it was a warning, and he didn't heed it. He said, look, your brothers were better than you. You killed them. So guess what? God's going to take your kingdom. He's going to take your wives. He's going to take your son. Um, and he's going to give you dysentery for two years. How do you like that? Your guts are going to fall out. And again, that's the poetic justice. He, had, he, lived, he lived such a nasty, disgusting, putrid life. God said, how about this? You're going to die disgusting, putrid, gross. Uh, it's going to be, you're going to be an eyesore and a stench to all the people that are around you, just like your life and legacy were. That's how you're going to die how you lived, in agony and disgusting. And that's what God did for him. And now it's a signpost. It's like, hey, as the Apostle Paul said, this was written for our instruction. Don't live like that. Have a better legacy than that. Take the long look. Choose righteous alliances. And listen, pray. Pray that you would stay sensitive and open and humble and obedient to the Word of God. That makes all the difference in the world. And I'm, I'm closing with this. Quickest closing you've ever heard. I want you to see verse 7 here. You're like, where's the, where's the grace in this? Here's the grace. Verse 7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. You know, God could have said, that's it, I'm finished. I'm finished with you, I'm finished with your family, I'm finished with this kingdom, I'm done, I'm going to wash my hands and wipe clean, I'm going to walk away and I'm going to start over. He didn't do that, did he? No, God kept his covenant. You know, in the Bible, a covenant is just a promise. That's all it means, an agreement between two or more parties. And they didn't, they didn't write a covenant, they cut a covenant, a berit. They would cut it. You know what they would do? They would take two animal. They would take an animal and they would cut the animal in half. Oh, it was bloody and disgusting. They would separate the halves, usually a heifer, cow, sheep, goats, slaughter them. In the Middle East, the sun would be out, flies would be buzzing, blood would be everywhere. It was violent, it was gory, it was disgusting. And the two parties would walk between these animal parts and they would shake hands or slap sandals. Cliff, you could probably give me a lecture on that or whatever they do in the Middle East for a covenant, right? And they would say this, if either of us violate our term of this covenant, may the Lord do so to us and more. May he slaughter us. In other words, if we violate this covenant, it's going to be bloody judgment is what it's going to be. 
And so, how could God be gracious to Israel in spite of that leadership? And listen, how can he be gracious to you now? How can God honor this covenant when we've obviously violated it over and over and over? There's a room full of promise breakers here, and I'm with you, right? So, the, the covenant has been broken, it's been violated. So, how does God keep it? Christ. Christ was slaughtered. He was bloodied. It was violent. It was gory. It was disgusting. His visage was marred. He did not even resemble a man. When he hung on that cross, you know why he's there? Because you and I have broken covenants. We've broken our covenant with God. We've been unfaithful. All we like sheep have gone astray. But here's the good news, and this is what we're about to celebrate with with our uh, communion. The good news is that he shed his blood and he broke his body because he is a promise keeper. And the lamp of Israel did not go out. In fact, think of how disgusting this man's life was, and still, he's in the genealogy here of the Messiah, right? One of his sons was spared. You can read the history of this, uh, and you know what? It would be a good Lord's Day meditation. We'll do it another day to contrast his life with Josiah's life, who, who lived an honorable life and tore down the high places and had a sensitive heart to God's Word, and people wept at his funeral. What will your legacy be, and what kind of legacy are you building right now? Let's pray, and then uh, I'm going to call the servants down here to help me serve. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this passage. It is one of the darker passages in the Bible, but all Scripture is, is profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that we may be equipped, um, fully equipped, Lord. And so I pray that this is not landed flat. I pray, Lord, that you would use this, especially anybody within the sound of my voice today, Lord. They are teeter-tottering on making a decision, Lord, that's just going to bring them some level of relief or comfort for the moment, but in the long term, it's going to damage their legacy. It's going to dishonor Christ. I pray, Lord, you would intervene. You would radically intervene. You have radically intervened in my life and so many times, Lord, when there was just a a sinful impulse, Lord, that my fallen heart wanted to follow, and yet you intervened, and your restraining grace was there, and we have that promise now, so I call upon you, Lord. If there is anybody in this room or watching from home, and they are entering into a period of their life, Lord, where there's, there's spiritual compromise, there's danger, and there's going to be destruction, and there's going to be judgment, I pray, Lord, you would intervene radically. Show your grace, show your restraining grace. And help us today just celebrate the good news, Lord, of your covenant-keeping faithfulness as we celebrate and receive communion together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. Servants, come on down and help me. For those of you that are new to Grace Life, we do this every first Sunday. We celebrate communion. The Bible doesn't really give us a, a time constraint. It says, as often as you do this... Do this in remembrance of me. You guys can prepare the table. And this is, a, uh, this is an ordinance. This is a, a visible reminder of the gospel, much the same way baptism is. This is the Lord's Supper. It's communion. It's, it's us remembering what our redemption cost God. We were so sinful that he had to send his son to become a man and to die in our place. But we're so loved, he was glad to do it. That's why this is both serious and joyful. It's, uh, it's kind of a paradox of the church, isn't it? This is a serious, somber time, but it's a festive and, and celebratory uh, time as well. Uh, 
because Jesus took our place. He was God's lamb that traded places with us, guilty rebels. Amen? We celebrate that today. So I'm going to pray and use this time for self-examination, and I, I would give you some instruction. What I use this time for is to remind myself of the imputed righteousness of Christ. If I'm just looking to see if I'm worthy enough, if I'm good enough to have the Lord's Supper today, that's going to take me into a dark place because I was never worthy enough to begin with, right? Jesus, it's his blood, it's his righteousness, it's his faithfulness, it's his life. And then I can examine my light and, and, and light of that. So let's pray. This, the Bible says this is for believers. This is an ordinance for believers that are walking with God. This is an ordinance for people who have given their life to Jesus. This is an ordinance for people who are believing the gospel right now. And some of your children, we only had a child care today for the younger children, but some of them may be in Christ. And if you want to get them and have them celebrate with you, that's fine. Uh, the older children are already in here. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to administer the elements and read a passage and partake. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this reminder. This is the first Sunday of the month, and this is when we all get a chance to preach because we're going to proclaim something in a moment by this ordinance. We are proclaiming your death until you return. Thank you, Lord, that if not for your restraining grace, we would all have a chapter that's just like this one in the Bible, Lord, where we made destructive decision after destructive decision and followed our own heart and did it our own way and uh, just left the train wreck dumpster fire of a legacy behind. But because of your grace, because of your love, because of your death and burial and resurrection and ascension, because you are seated in heaven at the right hand of God and it is finished, because of that, Lord, and because of you sending your spirit to give us guidance, to convict us, to eliminate our hearts and minds to the truth of your word and to give us direction and clarity because of those things, Lord, we have hope. So help us to celebrate the basis and the ground and the cause of that hope today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.